Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan, and this is my co-host, Gabia. Hello. So uh, this week, we are going to be discussing our top 10 films of 2018. Uh, I have been keeping a list of my top 10 movies of the year since I first started watching movies this year. Currently, my list of movies I've seen for the year is 73 films long. So I have been preparing for this <laughs> since March. I I beat you because I, I watched 116 movies, I think. But most of those were involuntary. Yeah, I mean, I've watched a lot more movies this year, but but not all new ones. And I get to opt out of seeing things like... Bird Box. Yes. I had to watch precisely. Bird Box. So we have a lot of thoughts on the movies this year. The way we're going to structure this is we're going to talk a little bit about the year in general in film. We haven't both seen exactly the same movies because the UK distribution system, as everyone who lives in the United Kingdom knows, is completely fucked. But we're going to talk a little bit about the year in general. Then we're going to go down counting down from 10 to discuss our top 10 films. And then at the end, we're going to talk briefly about a couple things that we're looking forward to in this coming year in movies. And also some of these do have their own episodes already. Yes. So we will not go into stuff that like, we don't want to double anything up. We will just be like, consult our episode on, you know, the favorite or what have you. Yeah. So um, what was really interesting to me about this year in movies is that this was like a preposterously good year, as all critics have been saying for months. I am going down my list. I'm looking at it now. I'm not going to give anything away. But like up through, I would say, 26 maybe, on my list. Oh, so you ranked all 73 of your movies. Oh, yeah. Movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just keep, oh, a, okay, running, right. I keep a running <laughs> list the whole time. It's, like, preposterously good. So many of the things, especially, I would say, like, 10 through 20, could easily have been in a top 10 in a year that was less stacked than this. Maybe not, like, at number one, but that's very impressive. And this also does add even more weight to your sort of continuing medical event over the fact that Vice is almost certainly going to receive nominations and almost certainly actual Oscars. Um, I've not seen Vice, but I'm absolutely willing to trust Morgan's opinion that it's a piece of shit. Yes. Well, it was interesting. I was reading um, the Oscar slash film blogger Nathaniel Rogers, whom I read for like 10 years. He's very good. He has a site called The Film Experience. And he was observing recently, and I had never really thought about this, but it was very interesting to me. And I was like, oh, I bet this is right. Years that are particularly strong film years often have really bad Oscar years. And I want to go back and like study this to see if I agree. But it kind of makes sense. Like he was his theory was basically that like when there's too much stuff, the Academy and like the awards, like community in general, are basically just like, we can't deal with this. This is too stressful. There are too many options. And then like, you know, bad stuff gets through. So something I've noticed over the past few days is the critic Mark Harris um has been tweeting quite a lot about like the response to Green Book. And he's kind of been talking about the political reasoning behind a lot of Oscar voting in ways that I think is sort of instinctually true. Like a lot of people kind of get what he's talking about once you know. And essentially it's like Green Book, the response to that has been very, very divided. So like, as we kind of discussed in our Patreon many so the other day after the Golden Globes, it's simultaneously getting loads of awards recognition and also being very heavily criticised for basically being racist um, and like very dated and there's a lot of kind of historically inaccurate elements in ways that aren't just like frivolous historical inaccuracy right and Mark Harris is kind of saying you know there's obvious kind of political reasons behind why people are like this is a great movie because they're like they want to watch a white savior movie but also it's like if people very specifically want to vote for an issues movie that kind of supports centrist but somewhat liberal like American I vote democrat but I'm a billionaire kind of politics this is like the only movie you have as an option to vote for because all of the other Oscar movies this year are like too weird they don't have a wholesome white guy protagonist or whatever you know so it's like you they're just like well we've got to give it to Green Book and it's like it's terrible but that's unfortunately what's happening yeah also he's also observed which I had been thinking for a while but he articulated it better than I had Everyone should just follow Mark Harris on Twitter. He's very good. 
that basically what we're seeing in the academy right now is this sort of contraction from the a few years that they had of huge diversity pushes and it just mirrors what's happening in America. I mean it's like every pop culture lore as well where yeah. it's like you get the reactionary response to when there's been a kind of proactive attempt to have more diverse hiring and kind of content in general. Yes. But going back to the year in general, what was interesting to me watching movies this year, there were there was a ton of stuff I really loved. I've seen a bunch of things multiple times, which I always try to do. And there are things I still want to watch a second time and haven't gotten a chance to yet. But part of what I'm about to say is due to, you know, things that stay in your mind longer, you become more fond of. But last year, I think, was not nearly as deep as this year. Like I made a top 20 list last year and I liked everything on it. But by the time I got down to 20, it was sort of like, yeah, this movie was pretty good. But the stuff at the top of my list last year that I really loved, I was obsessed with in a way that I don't feel particularly about many movies this year. So like the fact that Call Me By Your Name and Phantom Thread came out in the same year is like completely preposterous. Those are two like insane masterpiece films. and then. I know Dunkirk became sort of a, like a not hip movie to like, but I think that film is a like crazy masterpiece too. I totally love it. Like Lady Bird, I loved. I could go on. The stuff I really, really loved last year, I was completely just like, get out also. And then all of those movies did really, really well at the Oscars. Like four of those things I just listed all got nominated for Best Director. So there was kind of a synergy between the things that I specifically absolutely loved and the stuff that was getting a lot of attention which is pretty unusual and this year there is a lot of great stuff but I feel kind of less personally connected to a lot of it which is fine it's just been kind of a different experience like there's a lot of great stuff but there isn't as much stuff that I feel incredibly compelled by like I yeah, cried I mean, a, a lot, lot of people less. were kind of rooting for Lady Bird like it was a football team yes and Lady Bird was not my favorite of the year but I I saw it two times and the second time, weirdly, not the first time, I was like actually like weeping in the theater. And I don't cry very much at movies at all. And that's not necessarily a sign that it's like the best movie of the year. But I think only two things this year have made me cry, I think. And I think they're both on my top 10. Whereas last year, I was like a ton of stuff that I was just like losing it over. Which, I mean, different people are going to feel differently about different things, but it was just kind of, it was interesting for me to experience those two sort of different ways of having a good movie year. Like, there was just so much great stuff this year, but again, it wasn't as, like, I wasn't as passionate about my my favorites. But creating a top ten list was so hard because there was so much good stuff. I mean, the stuff that didn't get on mine is nuts i'm gonna list a bunch of sort of runner-ups the end just so that you guys know to go watch them but yeah i had a great time watching a lot of things this year so why don't we start with your number 10 should we do it this way yeah sure so um i already kind of had like a top nine list of the year because there were nine movies that i thought were both really good and i really found memorable and then my 10th pick i couldn't really think of one because while there were lots of films like Lady Bird, which I saw this year, and um, Vox Lux and various others that were really great. Like they didn't necessarily stick with me long term. They've not like kind of embedded themselves in my consciousness. So I've decided that my number 10 pick is actually going to be Venom, which is 50% a bad movie and 50% like it just incredibly fun. I don't feel like I need to reiterate any further. If you have listened to our podcast or read any of my coverage of that movie, you will understand precisely in what way I and Morgan both enjoyed that film. Uh, well done, Tom Hardy. I have one further note about Venom. Um, the Oscars are moving forward without a host this year because everything about the Oscars is a clusterfuck this year. But I have seen many people suggesting that Venom hosts the Oscars. And yes. I would just like to say that that is the best idea I've seen all year. And, oh, it would uh, be so good. It should happen. Yeah, they should just bring him out. Just let him go for the whole Oscars. Would be great. Um, my number 10 is this tiny little indie movie called Support the Girls, uh, which was directed by Andrew Bajalski, who has done a number of very small indies before. It is starring Regina Hall. She won the New York Film Critics Circle Prize for Best Actress for this, which was good in getting it some sort of attention, although I had already seen it. It's available on Hulu right now if you're in the US. Um, but basically, this movie is about this woman 
who is the manager of a Hooters type restaurant in uh, Texas, but they are an independent restaurant. There's, there's only one of them. And she, it takes place over the course of a day, mostly. And she's just trying to like manage a series of crises at this restaurant. She has all these kind of young female employees who have various dramas going on and this horrible, horrible boss. And I have seen almost nothing that captures so well what it is like to be a woman, like in general, but specifically in the workplace. Like it just so- I really, I really want to see this movie. (laughs) It is so unbelievably good. It's very funny while also dealing with quite serious things. Like it definitely is a comedy. Regina Hall is stupendous in this playing someone who is just like trying to get through the day, but also clearly is a really good person and a great manager. Her employees all love her. Um, Every single character in this movie feels completely like a real person, even if they don't have very much screen time. It's just very, very specific. And it has the best ending of a movie I've seen all year. And I can't explain why, but you just got to watch it. I do not know how a white man made this film. It reminded me a lot of... um, the Florida Project in a certain way. It's not about the same things, but it has that similar kind of lived in vibe. I just can't recommend it highly enough. It's so good. That is support the girls. Uh, Go watch it. It's on Amazon and Hulu. So my number nine is also, I think even smaller indie movie (laughs) Um, because this is definitely not getting any awards recognition. Um, It's a movie called The Endless, which you can actually watch on Netflix now. It just kind of got posted a couple of weeks ago. Um, and it's a sci-fi horror movie. It's by um, a pair of filmmakers called Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, um, who I only discovered when I watched this movie and was instantly like, I have to see everything these guys have made. Um, it is... I, I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but it is centering around a pair of brothers who um, clearly spent like a formative part of their life in a cult. And it kind of starts off with them getting a video message from the cult that seems like it might be a suicide letter, like, oh, we're ascending to the UFO plane kind of thing. Um, And the younger of the two brothers, who is kind of, has more rosy memories of their cult time, is like, oh, I really want to go visit them. So it's a story about them going back to this very enigmatic, kind of happy, clappy cult town in the middle of the desert. And we gradually find out some weird sort of like Donnie Darko-ish kind of stuff that's happening in that like physical area. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I cannot explain anything further, but like it's um it's just like a really interesting film that has been made on a very low budget in a way that just absolutely works. The first kind of five minutes or so I was not very impressed by because I was like, can these guys actually act? And just for some reason, the first five minutes aren't that great and the rest of it's really excellent. And after watching this, which by the way is quite an an alarming film. It's not scary in the sense that there was any gore or jump scares, but it's quite like psychologically alarming to me anyway. I then went and watched their first film. They made two films in between, um, which Guillermo del Toro highlighted one of them as like one of his favorite horror movies of the past decade, which is bonkers. (laughs) Um, But their first movie literally takes place in the same universe as this and directly ties in right up to the location and sort of like overlapping timelines and stuff. And I was like, these guys are very ambitious. <laughs> um, but like, I think this is going to be their breakout film because while it didn't really get much attention when it came out, it must have got attention from producers because like one of them's about to make a TV show and they, like together their, their next movie stars Anthony Mackie. So I think, yeah, they're going to be big quite soon. I really want to watch this. Your recommendation has convinced me. I'm going to do it soon. My number nine is A Star Is Born, which I have seen twice and I just love. We talked about this on an episode, but I just think it's so rare for a movie to have such wide appeal, which we have also discussed. But um, just the experience of getting to talk to so many different people from so many different areas of my life about the same movie and have them all be so enthusiastic about it was really, really fun for me this year. And um, I think that it it's uncommon to see something that's so good with such huge movie stars that's such a sort of classic type movie these days if they don't make them yeah i mean it's like a it's like a very very mainstream hit that doesn't involve a cgi robot yeah so (laughs) it's 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 not 
it's they don't make them like that anymore except for this and i think bradley cooper and this is one of absolutely the best performances in the year i just think he's amazing and he did a good job directing it so congratulations to bradley you better win the oscar or i'm gonna be mad (laughs) yeah my number eight is sorry to bother you which we discussed in our film festival episode like london new york film festival so you can go back and find our discussion i've seen this movie twice now i just find it really interesting i like all of the sort of technical aspects of it like how funny it was and how kind of ostentatiously weird and entertaining while also having a very fresh political outlook that one doesn't really see in kind of any mainstream media I do think it's too long like when I was watching it the second time I was like this film's definitely too long uh, perhaps it would have benefited from some better female characters but sorry to bother you rules and um, I think that everyone should watch it and I'm looking forward to Boots Riley's next movie my number eight is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse I don't think I have a ton to say about this that we didn't discuss on our episode but I will say that it is a huge testament to this film that it is on my top 10 list and many, many other great movies that I saw this year aren't. It's just a massive accomplishment and is one of the most fun experiences I had in the theater this year. I can't wait to see it a second time. Agreed. Um, my number seven is Black Panther. Um, self-explanatory. Longtime listeners will know that Black Panther is my absolute favorite superhero. This movie was really good. I can't believe I only saw it once because I feel like I have a lot of it embedded in my brain. Um, but uh, it's wonderful. So yeah. Yeah. And also Ruth, Ruth Carter, the costume designer, needs to win a fucking Oscar. Because <laughs> like I remember at the beginning of the year, I was like, well, yes, well, clearly she's going to be the best of the year. She was. And she did not even get nominated for a BAFTA at this year's BAFTAs, which is... <laughs> Unfortunately, the BAFTAs are racist. So... <laughs> that is correct. That doesn't help. She's definitely going to get nominated for an Oscar. We'll see if she wins. I yeah, certainly I mean, I think so. the issue this year is there's several big historical dramas like The Favourite and Mary Queen of Scots that could easily get it when they shouldn't. Yes. They shouldn't. But we will discuss that more <laughs> on a, our Oscar podcast. Yes. <laughs> uh, speaking of The Favourite, my number seven is The Favourite, which I only saw once. I'm about to see it again. Perhaps by the time this episode is posted, I will have seen it a second time. This movie's just fucking awesome. It's so good. It, we talked about this also, we will link to all these episodes, but um, I just think it's such a totally unique movie for this kind of period setting. And I like period, cl- more classic sort of period movies, but this is such its own thing. And the sort of combination of the weird screenplay, but not as weird as Yorgos Lanthimos's other movies, the sort of tempering of him, but still his weird style, I think it all just works so well. And it has some of the best acting of the year in it. All the performances are great. Oh, so good. Nicholas Holt hasn't gotten any attention, but he's <laughs> he should be nominated for an Oscar too, along with all the women. And Olivia Coleman is just sublime. Everyone knows this, but it bears repeating. She's just beyond good. I'm so happy she's getting attention for something uh, on this side of the pond because she's one of the best actors alive, I think. So uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah. I mean, my number six is also the favorite. And uh, yeah, lots of support for that kind of weird, modernist kind of version of a restoration comedy. Yes. With really good music choices. Like the set, I watched it for the second time uh, a couple of weeks ago. And the second time around was when I was like sitting there like, yeah, love this music. Because like I knew it was something, I'd looked up like which composer to use this time around. And it's just like, there's some, there's like a very wide time period of composers. Like he's got some like, current ones and like all the way back to Vivaldi or whatever and then the credits music is in a song by Elton John which is like perfectly chosen because the intro is on a harpsichord so you think it's going to be a period accurate piece of music and then it's just Elton John singing a very literal song which very directly ties in with the end of the movie like it's a fucking rom-com and I was like this is hilarious. (laughs) I also think the one other note about the favorite that I think has been interesting in the way it's been covered is that this is a very queer movie and people haven't been talking about that so much. And then I've seen some people... I mean, people, lesbians have, but yeah. <laughs> the, I mean, like, mainstream, of course, yeah, but yeah. like, the mainstream Oscar coverage has not touched upon this very much. And some people have been complaining about that, and I do think that there's something about that that isn't great. But the flip side is that this is just, like, a love triangle between three women, and everyone's just like, yeah. And, like, proceeding with it, and it's getting all of these awards, and it's not, like, it isn't a big drama that this is what it's about. And like, there are subway posters in New York that are quite explicitly like, they're not (laughs) hiding that that's what it is. 
it just hasn't become a big talking point. And I actually think there's something about that that's kind of <laughs> kind of cool in a way that it's just like, yep, here we are. Well, it's it's like the marketing. It's it's sort of the opposite of what they did with Mary Queen of Scots because I mean, obviously, it's not like a, a gay movie, but. Sometimes, you know, you'll get like a female-led historical movie and they'll go the route of Colette, which is a queer movie, or Mary Queen of Scots, but like, yes, it's a very modern feminist commentary on a time when it was hard for women, blah, 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 which is like a legitimate way to promote something. But like, in this case, Yorgos Lanthimos does not gel with that type of sort of girl power marketing. And also it doesn't, that doesn't fit with like the concept of the movie. So they're just like, they've not been like, this is tempting to like make a political statement. No. So it's not really the same thing as Carol, where the Weinstein company was literally trying to hide the fact that Carol was about lesbians. Right. Which was just like, oh my god. Yeah, so I think the, like, I I also understand the sort of critiques about not enough people talking about it, but I think that there is also a sort of positive about that, which is that some people just don't care. <laughs> like, um, yeah, great, great film. I can't wait to see it again. So my number six is Shoplifters by Corey Ada, which won the Palme d'Or at Cannes this year. I mentioned it on one of our film festival episodes. This movie has actually done quite well at the box office, relatively speaking, for a foreign film in the U.S. So if you live in a major or major-ish city, there's a good chance you can see it in a theater. Uh, It's just an astonishing movie. It is one of the few things that did make me cry in the cinema this year. It's so beautiful. It's, I'm not going to go into the plot, but it's, it has lots to do with, you know, found families and kind of abuse. Um, but it's not uh, brutal to watch, although it is quite sad at the end. There's a lot of comedy and just beautiful observational scenes. It's just a really sort of humanistic movie in a way that is very difficult to achieve, I think. I think it's Ava DuVernay's number one movie of the year. A lot of directors have said that it's like on the top of their list. Uh, I cannot recommend it enough. Um, if you have any chance to see this, please do. It will obviously be available on streaming soon enough, and I will post a link when it is on my Twitter. Uh, that's Shoplifters. It's it's so good. As I said, it made me cry. One of the best very small child performances of the year also. She's like five in this. And she's so good. She's so cute. So go watch that movie too. Uh, my number five, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Um, you may have missed our episode on that if you were kind of busy over the holidays, but we did that kind of over Christmas kind of time. Um, I think it was a really good episode. We went quite deep into all the reasons why this movie is legitimately revolutionary as kind of a mainstream superhero film. It's great. Highly recommend it. Uh, my number five is The Writer, which is directed by Chloe Zhao. And I first saw that at NIF, like in 2017 at the, the New York Film Festival. And then saw it again this year. It has been a sort of critical darling of like little indie, indie awards groups. It is kind of a docudrama, takes place on a Native American reservation. It is a fictional film, but it follows pretty closely the the real life story of the lead actor, Brady Jandro, who was a rodeo rider and then had a pretty severe head injury and then was told he couldn't do rodeo anymore or even ride. And his father and his sister play his father and his sister in the movie and his friends are in the movie as his friends. And, and I had no idea of that when I saw it, actually. I just thought it was like a normal drama. And it is... Unlike any movie I've seen before, it's just a completely sweet, generous thing. It is so beautiful. The acting from all of these non-professional actors is astonishing. The main guy has the most unbelievable face you'll ever see. And it is this incredibly American film by someone who immigrated here from China. And I think often movies that really evoke the spirit of a country are made by people who are not originally from that country. I've often found that to be true. And this movie really embodies that. Um, she, Chloe Zhao is directing a film for Marvel next. I do not remember which one it is, but that will be very interesting. She's so talented. I, this is just a beautiful, beautiful film visually and in every other way. Uh, yeah, it's great. The writer. I definitely want to see that. Yeah. 
Um, number four is Roma, which I think we discussed on one of our film festival podcasts. Um, yeah, this is a really beautiful movie. I'm kind of glad that I didn't really know much about it before I went in because it was just so interesting to kind of see a piece of filmmaking like this unfold. Um, it really kind of draws you into having simultaneously like a really authentic emotional response to the film and also you really kind of pick up on all the technique stuff. This is like a really stupid sounding description of this film, but um, it's really wonderful. This is like Alfonso Cuaron's magnum opus after a career of making just really fucking good movies. So yeah, I saw it again a couple days ago on 70 millimeter on a huge screen. And it's really hard to talk about, I think, because it's so perfect. It's one of those movies that's like, what do you even say? I mean, because when I was reviewing it, I was like, most of the time when I'm reviewing, I mean, obviously most of the time when I'm reviewing films, I'm reviewing fairly silly films. But also I was like, this is like a rare situation where I actually have to do like a serious sort of theatrical, like talking about cinematography and, and director's sort of spiritual journey and stuff. And I'm like, this is, it is hard to talk about. Yeah. And I mean, there are plenty of like amazing masterpiece films that I don't think, are difficult to talk about because they have all kinds of, you know, naughty philosophical stuff going on and whatnot. And it's not that that's not happening in this movie. Obviously it is, but it's such an immersive experience. It's so unbelievably perfect. It's saying everything there is to say about itself. So I, I think it's really difficult to talk about because it is the definitive statement about itself <laughs> yeah i was really overwhelmed by it the second time i actually think it, i completely loved it the first time but the second time i actually i was even more taken with it i i just think it's perfect yeah i mean i think what i said in our episode about it or the episode that involved this i was just like it really brings me back to like my childhood living in 1970s mexico <laughs> right <laughs> so it's like okay it's like just really it just feels so real to me <laughs> yeah i mean that's exactly that's exactly what it is um my number four is Wildlife, which was directed by Paul Dano. It's starring Carrie Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal. This movie got very, very little attention, which was very disappointing to me because I thought it was completely astounding, obviously. But it's kind of a small and quiet film, so it makes some sense on that level. It is based on a Richard Ford novel, and it takes place in the 60s and I believe, Wyoming. And it's about basically this couple parents of this teenage boy who it's kind of from the teenage boy's perspective uh and the they're having some financial difficulties they're not really getting along and then the father jake Gyllenhaal, decides that he's going to leave them and go fight this wildfire that's taking place on this mountain sort of an hour away from the house or something and he will be back when the wildfire is out in the winter and sort of leaves them up a creek financially and it's just sort of a mess I keep pitching this to people as the best divorce movie since The Squid and the Whale, which is the definitive divorce movie, in my opinion. And um, I think also part of the reason that the the film hasn't had as much attention is that Carrie Mulligan is playing the mother and she's playing the mom in a way that, like, the, the movie just has no interest in whether or not this woman is likable. Like, that's just completely not how the the character is presented she does a lot of things that are bad in terms of how she's interacting with her kid but the movie isn't interested in saying like this is a bad person or a bad mom or whatever it's just that like this is what's happening and so it was i was sort of comparing this in the writer and trying to think like okay which is going to be you know four which is going to be five and the writer is definitely as i said like unlike anything i've seen before and wildlife you know, it takes place mid-century America. There are people having trouble in their marriage. Like, it's a more familiar kind of story. But I think the reason I placed it higher is that my parents are divorced, and so it had a lot of personal significance to me. I've seen a lot of stories like this that don't feel as real, and this one felt unbelievably accurate. And also, even though it is familiar in a lot of ways, I think the treatment of that Carrie Mulligan character in particular who is sort of like difficult feels like a bad word to use talking about a f- female character, but like she's just treated in a way that is very uncommon. And I think her performance is one of the very best of the year. She's so good in this movie. 
and it's just the way it's presented is like it's not really either the parents fault it just kind of is this shitty situation and i found it incredibly beautiful and i cried like crazy at the end i think it's available online now i can't recommend it highly enough it's so 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 good and Pollyanna was an actor and had never directed a movie before. And I was like, how did you do this? This is crazy. So and he must have just been it. observing all of the yes. like acclaimed indie yes. filmmakers he's been working yes. with for the past decade. <laughs> I mean, good job. And he and his um, partner or wife, Zoe Kazan, wrote it together. And their screenplay is really brilliant. So kudos to them for that as well. Yeah, so my number three is Annihilation, which we talked about right at the beginning of the year. Um, I'm still very bitter that this did not get a theatrical release in the UK. So I've only watched this on Netflix. I would love to see this in a cinema. I've only watched it once, partly because I'm kind of hoping that some indie theatre in Glasgow decides to, to screen it at some point. This film is just wild. Like, it's it's a fantastic piece of sci-fi filmmaking and storytelling. It's very kind of ambitiously weird and disturbing while also having a cast full of famous people that everyone likes <laughs> um, <laughs> and giving really strong performances. I Yeah, I just, I really like this and I really like the filmmaker, Alex Garland, who at the moment is working on a kind of TV series, which I assume will have sci-fi elements, but it seems to be about computer programmers. And yeah, it's great. Yeah, I didn't love this movie, but I agree that it's a crime that they did not release this in the cinema. To be clear, I liked it. I just, it wasn't one of my favorites. Um, but it was so much fun to see in the, in a theater because there are definitely some jump scares that were yeah. really enjoyable. I mean, it has um, one of the scariest like scenes of the year, which if you've seen the movie, you will know about, but on the whole, the film in general does not have, it's not kind of like a full on 100% horror movie. Like a lot of it is this very kind of, you know, emotional drama and also the framework of it is like a classic alien invasion storyline, but told in such a kind of, uh, such a fresh way that there is no way you're going to be like, oh, it's like Arrival. Yes, very, very. <laughs> because Arrival is like extremely straightforward and accessible, which is the reason why this didn't get distribution in cinemas properly because they were like oh yeah no one's gonna get this and it's like it's full of famous people if you just make a poster which makes it really clear that natalie portman and oscar isaac are both in this people will fucking watch it they did not oh well they buried this film yeah uh so my number three is first reformed which you refuse to watch But yeah, I already find the climate apocalypse too upsetting. Well, see, this is the thing. I was talking to a friend of mine about this the other day. So First Reformed was directed by Paul Schrader, stars Ethan Hawke as this um, reverend who is working in this tiny little church in upstate New York that's basically just like a historical church, like five people go and it's affiliated with a mega church. And he's just been stuck there because he has personal problems and the mega church is where all the money goes and it's very depressing. And um, he winds up counseling this uh, young man who is incredibly depressed about climate change and his wife is pregnant and he doesn't want her to have the baby because of the climate apocalypse. And poor Ethan Hawke is like (laughs) trying to deal with this and it's very difficult. And then things happen. And the movie's kind of about eco-terrorism and kind of about this, I mean, mostly about this guy's sort of spiritual crisis and trying to deal with all of this stuff. Ethan Hawke gives one of the best performances in the year in this. It's very different from your typical Ethan Hawke performance. Normally he's playing a very charismatic character because he's a very charismatic person. And in this, he's playing a very recessive person. And I was talking to a friend of mine who had also seen it. And I was saying, I was, I was telling her that you refused to watch it and this was driving me crazy. And I was saying, like, I saw it twice. The first time I definitely was like, wow, this is dark, but I really loved it. It's also funny, which definitely helps because if it weren't funny, you'd just be like, I want to die. But the fact that someone actually made a film about this subject in a serious way, which nobody ever does, I found actually to be, while depressing in a certain way, it relieved me of something. Because it actually acknowledged the problem. And especially the second time I watched it. It was funny. I saw it um, the second time at a screening at Museum of Modern Art 
where I go to a lot of films. And the guy next to me clearly had not seen the movie before because at the end, he just like had his head in his hands. and was like, oh no. And I had this huge smile on my face at the end of watching this the second time because it was such a perfect film. And I just was like, this is like what art is supposed to be. I liked it a lot more the second time. I don't think this is a movie you have to watch twice to like get it, but it was a really interesting experience for me. This was the one movie I think where I saw it the first time this year and was like, oh yeah, I really liked that. And then I saw it the second time and was like, this is a masterpiece. Holy shit. Like we are so starved for art about this. And this is a movie that completely engages yeah. with this. Basically the guy, Ethan Hawke character starts to kind of go crazy over the course of this movie. But the question the movie is implicitly asking and doesn't answer because there isn't really an answer is like, is this a rational response to what is happening? Because what other response is rational, right? Like, yeah, we should all kind of be going nuts mm-hmm. over this. It's incredible. Also, I mean, there are other things to say about the way the film is made. It's perfect in every way. Um, I just think it's a total work of genius. So that's my pitch for First Reformed. To you personally and also <laughs> to all of our listeners. <laughs> it's on Amazon Prime right now. You can all go watch it. Well, my number two is Hereditary, which I was absolutely wild about this year. (laughs) This film is terrifying, but it's also a very well-written, well-performed story, like a drama story about a dysfunctional family. Toni Collette is absolutely wonderful, and so are the supporting cast, the teenagers who play her two kids and um, her husband and so forth. They're just really great. Um, I don't feel like I need to elaborate on the concept of this film. You know, it's sort of like a kind of fairly classic horror movie premise but like it is so effective and this film had a huge impact on me not in any particularly meaningful emotional sense but just in the sense (laughs) that I was so scared that I basically was just scared for the rest of the year um, afraid of the dark and also I just became obsessed with horror movies so I just watched dozens and dozens of horror movies this year Um, immediately after watching Hereditary I went back and watched The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby and a couple of other classics I hadn't seen before um, and they were all very good. And yeah, I'm going to probably go to a horror movie festival There you next go. Month. See, whereas I saw this movie, I, this is a testament to how strong this year was. I fucking love this movie. I thought Tony Collette in this movie was absolutely astounding. And it is also crazy to me that she's not going to get nominated for an Oscar. I currently have it at 19 on my list. Like, this is how good this year was. <laughs> but I also will say that this movie and First Reform came out very, very close together. And I, after seeing them was like the real horror film of like, you know, April of this year or whatever was first performed. <laughs> yeah, because it's like the difference between like, do I want to crash my car or do I want to go on a roller coaster? And Hereditary yes. is the roller coaster. So I'll still see first performed. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm just, I'm just a wimp. <laughs> uh, my number two is Roma, which we've already talked about. Uh, my number one is a film which... It's technically a 2017 film and I thought was a 2017 film for me until I checked my calendar last month and was like, oh, I actually saw this in February because 2018 was a million years long. It is Phantom Thread. We did a podcast about this. I love this film passionately. It is perfect. It is very funny. It's very psychologically astute. It has a lot of interesting stuff to say about gender. I love fashion, so I'm excited that there's a fashion movie which isn't, you know, which is interesting and serious and dark. Um, and the score by Johnny Greenwood is just astounding. Like I listened to that so many times that Spotify informed me that it was my album of the year. So <laughs> spent a lot of time cooking and listening to the inappropriate orchestral score for cooking things from this movie. Oh yeah, and also the fact that it was full of food stuff. I really appreciate films that um, have food in them, which is a less intelligent comment. But uh, Phantom Thread fucking rules, and it is by far my yeah. I mean film. that's a twenty. That is a twenty seventeen film. But if that had come out this year, it would have been my number one also. I was looking back at my list from last year, and I my, that was at seven on my list last year. And I remember, I think it was the critic David Ehrlich tweeting, like, you know, this is like, you know, when you put something at seven and you know that it's going to be like one of your favorite movies, but like you can just sense that it's going to rise up, but like you have it at seven now. And I had the yeah. exact, it's, I had <laughs> the exact the same experience. I put it at seven and I was like, I feel like, like this is going to change what was your number one that year? Calling by your name, which still would be. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Dunkirk was number two. And I think now it would be Calling by your name, Phantom Thread, and then Dunkirk. But I really liked Phantom Thread for the first time I saw it. I saw it three times in the cinema. 
And I think it is one, like a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson's stuff. I mean, the master I like loved insanely from the first time that I saw it. But even There Will Be Blood, which is my favorite movie, like I really, really liked it the first time. It had an unbelievably profound effect on me. But I saw it a second time. This is when it was when it came out. And I had sort of the first time I had kind of been like, oh, yeah, like this is amazing. But the first third is kind of slow and like could it be you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I saw it a second time, like three weeks later. And I was like, this is perfect. <laughs> like Nothing needs to be changed. And Phantom Thread, I think in particular, like the first time I really liked it, but didn't fully get it. And then I saw it again and I was like, oh, yeah. Then I saw it a third time and was like, oh. <laughs> well, I saw this year, I saw after watching Phantom Thread, I saw The Master and I saw There Will Be Blood. But I was like going into it, I was slightly concerned because, um, you know, it's, it's a movie about like a middle-aged man being angry about an oil well. And uh, one of my friends was like, this film is so sexist. Whereas Morgan was like, this film's amazing. And I watched it. I was like, no, this fi- the-, the film was so good that I was just sitting there, like practically like applauding all the way through. <laughs> like this is an electrifying artistic experience. I'm oh enjoying every moment, like throughout my whole body. I was like, this is just incredible film. So if we were including old films that we saw for the first time, that would be like very high yes. at the top of my list. Yeah. <laughs> He's, he is the best. Well, my number one is You Were Never Really Here by Lynn Ramsey, which has been sadly abandoned by everyone at the end of this year. Yeah, the, the, the conversation about like, oh, there's no female filmmakers nominated for anything this year is like centered around her because she is an established filmmaker. Critically, this film got a ton of positive responses and it's just been dunked. <laughs> well, this is what's so mysterious to me, right? Is that when it came out in April or May, the response was insanely positive. Like this got reviewed like, not everyone loved it. There were some people who really didn't. But by uh, overall, the response was incredibly positive. And then I was not expecting it to get, like, Oscars or anything. It's a very dark and weird movie. But it didn't even win any critics' prizes from any major groups. And I was like, what is happening? Come on. <laughs> like, And I get Roma winning everything. But it just felt... It was just kind of depressing to me to be like, ah, yes, here we are again. If you are not familiar with this movie, uh, this is a film in which Joaquin Phoenix, who I think is giving the best performance of the year, literally has not received any awards attention from, again, even critics over this, which makes me mad, is playing this guy who is was in the military, clearly has PTSD issues, um, although none of that is explained in a sort of explicit way. It's all shown through yeah. sort of elliptical flashbacks. And even flashback is too strong a word. She does this thing where she'll show just like one brief shot of something. And his job as such uh, is he's kind of this hitman whose job is to rescue underage girls who've been like sold into sex trafficking rings. If that pitch uh, sounds dark to you, that's because this movie is very, very dark. But I mean, it sounds like the pitch for a Liam Neeson movie, right. but it has not one iota of like mainstream fun to it. It's like the opposite of sort of a celebration of violence. It's like every aspect of this is horrible. This is what was so interesting about this movie to me. And like Lynn Ramsey is a director who's extremely interested in violence. Like all of her movies are about that in some way. She also made the adaptation of We Need to Talk About Kevin, which is about a school shooting that is a great film starring Tilda Swinton and Ezra Miller. But she is not interested in a fetishization of violence in any way. So this movie, there are a few moments where she shows really graphic things, but for the most part, she actually doesn't show a lot of the violence and especially not the violence that the Joaquin Phoenix character is committing. So like the the big scene where he kind of rescues the main girl that this movie is focused around, she shows through security camera footage. So you get the sense of what he's doing, but it's not like you see the like gruesome stuff that's going on. So she's clearly very fascinated by this, but she doesn't want to titillate you at all. And I kept thinking, like, if a man were making this movie, this whole concept and execution would be so gross. Like, obviously, there are some male filmmakers, maybe, but like, it because of her, she was doing it with her perspective, it became instead this, like, study of this guy who is so fucked up in a way that I found completely engrossing. And I just think the direction of this movie, which is, there is some dialogue in it. It's not like it's a, you know, dialogue-free film, but everything is conveyed through the image. It is so unbelievably focused on 
you having the experience of absorbing information through watching the film. I think she's a genius. I think Joaquin Phoenix is a genius. And Johnny Greenwood also did the score for this. And it is so good. So you have these three sort of master craftsmen working together to create this thing that I just found unbelievably affecting. I was also uh, on a five-day course of prednisone watching this, which is a drug that makes you insane. And so I got home from this and literally was like having an anxiety meltdown, which is not something that I do, but this drug makes you nuts. And I was just like, oh my God, this film is messing me up. Like what's happening? So partially due to the film and partially due to medication, this movie absolutely had the strongest impact me in on me in the sort of short term. Uh, and I will definitely never remember, never forget watching it. So uh, yeah, it, some people definitely shouldn't watch this. It's really hard. It's very upsetting. But if everything I just said makes you think that this would be interesting to you, I thought it was incredible. And also, despite it being upsetting, I found it very invigorating just because the art I was seeing was so amazing. And so sort of with those qualifications, I really recommend it if you're interested in, in film. Um, I just love it so much. Uh, I've only seen it once, but I really need to see it again. Um, yeah, it's just great. I mean, something I just looked up that I think is, because I was like, this might be quite illustrative of the way this film is being shut out of awards season. I decided to look up all the awards that the Wolverine film Logan was nominated for. Because <laughs> uh, I think there's, there's, there's ways in which one can compare these two films. Kind of thematically, obviously one of them is a film which has big blockbuster film stars and is part of a franchise and benefits from having lower expectations because no one expects a superhero film to be a genuinely great drama which Logan was but Logan was nominated for the best adapted screenplay Ac academy award and was nominated for best best action movie best supporting actor and best young performer in the Chris critics choice awards and nominated for dozens and dozens and dozens of awards worldwide and won a few as well and um world ain't fair <laughs> I think is uh <laughs> yep <laughs> yes my point indeed <laughs> uh yeah it's a bummer but the movie exists, so you just gotta, yes. you know. Also, at least we could, you know, Joaquin Phoenix certainly does not want to be involved in any of this situation, so he doesn't care about this. No, he and Rooney Mara want to sit in a small dark room chain smoking. Right, so, it's, so. that's fine. Uh, but I do wish Lynn Ramsey were getting more attention. What can you do? Um, so those are our top ten lists. I do want to run through just very quickly. I'm not going to comment on this at all. I'm just going to, like, literally list titles of other films that I thought were great in descending order. I'm going to do a top 10 list on my website at some point in the next couple of weeks, and I'll post a link to that and you will be able to see all of these titles. But if you want to watch some good films now, uh, other great movies that came out this year, death of Stalin, shirkers, kindergarten teacher, eighth grade mission impossible, fallout, black Klansman, free solo, leave no trace, cold war, private life, my beloved Paddington two. Can You Ever Forgive Me, The Tale, Happy as Lazaro, and Life and Nothing More. What a great movie. What a great year for films. So many great films directed by women also that the Oscars are just ignoring. So very briefly, we're going to highlight a couple things from next year that we're excited about. Yeah, so um, in terms of like independent dramas, I actually don't know much about what's coming up apart from films that are technically 2018 films that haven't come out here like Beale Street and Can You Ever Forgive Me, which I'm looking forward to seeing next month. Um, I think the two that I've actually kind of heard of in terms of dramas next year that I'm looking forward to are the Little Women adaptation, um, which is self-explanatory. I don't know what happens in Little Women. <gasps> so this is going to be, I am the only little bookworm. I know one plot point oh from Little God. Women, but I never read it. Oh so I'm excited to watch this film in God. an unusually pure state for our demographic um the other kind of drama film i'm looking forward to is um where'd you go bernadette which is kind of a comedy drama by richard linklater which stars kate blanchett as a agoraphobic uh, writer who mysteriously goes missing and her teenage daughter has to find her and then blockbusters star wars and uh, john wick 3 of course um wow i can't believe you don't know what happens to little women this is amazing to me i'm so yeah, excited I for you <laughs> Yeah, I read Little Women for the first time when I was eight, and my grandmother lived in walking distance of the Alcott house. So 
I was very into Little Women. I've read like every other children's classic. I dressed up as Joe March for Halloween once. Like this is the level. I'm so excited for that movie. The other couple things I will list are Ad Astra, which is a space movie from James oh, Gray. Yeah, Brad Pitt. Yes, with Brad Pitt uh, and Ruth Negga and various other people. James Gray made The Lost City of Zed a couple last year, a couple years ago, uh, which I liked but didn't love. But he also made the film The Immigrant with Marion Cotillard uh, in 2014, which is one of my very favorite movies of the decade. He is a really interesting filmmaker. And he has not made films that would suggest to you that he would make a movie set in space. So I'm very, very curious to see what that is like. And a couple days ago, a trailer dropped for the new Tony Gilroy film, uh, Velvet Buzzsaw. Tony Gilroy made Nightcrawler. Great movie. I made sure to not watch the trailer so for that. So I did, and it was a mistake. Because <laughs> I was like, I don't want any yeah, spoilers. <laughs> don't watch the trailer, because I think it gives way too much away. However, having watched it, oh my fucking god. So this movie takes place in the like LA art scene, and Jake Gyllenhaal appears to play like a dealer of some kind. He's got big glasses and a ridiculous, just a ridiculous aura about him. He's got a kind of Beatles-y haircut. Yes. He's got flat hair. Yeah. And just, it seems like kind of horror and satirical. I have loved Jake Gyllenhaal since I was 14 years old. And I think he is at his finest when he is doing ridiculous things. And so this looks great. I was about great. to say, when Jake Gyllenhaal has fun, he has fun. Yes. Like his role in Okja which I would recommend. It's, it's um, kind of a family-friendly, allegedly sci-fi <laughs> film with a little girl and a big monster thing, but he plays this like weird, quirky villain. So fun. Yeah. So that looks that looks really good. I just remembered one, another one that I'm really looking forward to, which is Us by Jordan Peele. Yes. Um, which I also intentionally did not watch the trailer for, even though every single person on the internet was talking about this trailer when it came on Twitter, because I was like, no, well, I don't need to watch that it. That was interesting, <laughs> because the trailer for that I actually did not think was a great trailer in terms of like the construction of the trailer. However, I fully anticipate the movie itself will be superb. And the cast I'm very, is very ready. So the cast good. is incredible. So um I'm yeah, I'm very, very excited for that, as are all breathing humans who have yes. who watch movies. So uh that's gonna be really good. Let's hope that next year is even half as good as this year for movies because this year was good, and also we need something to distract us from the horrors of the world. So, we had a good time talking about movies this year. Please watch some of these and tell us what you thought. If you had really felt strongly about something else, you can also let us know that too. Um, Email us. Tweet us. Yes. We are available through many channels. If you want to listen to our Golden Globes episode, our Venom <laughs> Minisode or various other things, you can subscribe to our Patreon, which is available at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. You can also find us at our website, overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>